So today we come to the end of our Go series where we have been exploring the mission that God is calling every single follower of Christ into. Every one of us is called into this mission that God has been on from the very beginning. Uh, Several weeks ago when Robert kicked off the series, he talked about the mission of God, this idea of missio Dei, the mission of God, and that God has been on a mission from the very beginning. And it's a, a simple mission. It is to cover the earth with his glory. And so he created humanity and he created us in his image that we would be fruitful and multiply and cover the earth and that everywhere we go, because we're bearing his image, we would display his glory and the earth would be covered with his glory. And we did really good at the fruitful and multiply and covering the earth thing, not so great at the covering with his glory, like displaying his glory. And so God's like, all right, I need a new plan. So he called out Abraham, and he called out the nation of Israel, and he blessed them. He said, I'm going to bless you, and I'm going to make you a blessing to the whole world so that my glory will be displayed over the whole earth. And it didn't go so great there either. So God sent his son, Jesus. And Jesus, he redeemed a people for himself, his church. And he took that people, and he, he filled that people with his spirit, and he sent them on that very same mission, the same mission he was on from the very beginning, to cover the earth so that his glory would be displayed in every corner of the earth. And we've actually been doing that for the last 2,000 years. It's the mission of the church. And this mission, it's not just, it's not just like God created us and thought, you know, I, I made them. i got to figure out something for them to do. How about, all right, I'll come up with a mission. No, the mission actually started first, and God created us for the mission. So the mission of God, it's not just like a side gig for us. Side gigs are super popular today. Anybody have like a side gig, side hustle, some people call it? Uh, like, like for me, I, on the side, like I'll do some architectural design work. Uh, just to, it's fun and I get to, you know, help pay the bills. My wife, she'll, she used to do a lot of like chalkboard art and stuff like that. Last year she illustrated children's books, super cool. Uh, and it's just, it's not what we do for a living, but it's like we get to do it and it's fun and it helps pay the bills. Anybody got a side gig, side hustle? The mission of God is not your side gig. <laughs> the mission of God is your very reason for being, your raison d'etre. It is why you were created. It's why I was created. Every single one of us were made for the mission of God. And over the course of the series, we've been exploring different ways that we can engage in the mission of God. Things like serving in ministry here in the church or, or serving outside of the church for the common good or sharing our faith story with other people or investing financially into what we're doing. These are all different ways. These are kind of special ministry projects, ways that we can engage in the mission of God. And most of these are new things, some things that maybe you're doing uh, and, you know, you might do more of, some things that you weren't doing at all that you might start to do, things you might add to your life, uh, new special kind of ministry engagements, ways that you can engage with the mission of God in your life. And I did some math this week, all right? I'm not a mathematician, all right, so don't hold me to this. But uh, my very rudimentary math skills, I uh, found out that we have about 50,000 waking hours every week as a congregation. If you like combine all of us together, our waking hours as a congregation is about 50,000 hours. And if we are nailing this ministry thing, we have like some people in full-time ministry and some people in like half-time ministry and, and some volunteers that are putting like 10 hours a week and then, and then like the large majority of us are putting in five hours a week, all right, into like ministry, serving in ministry inside and outside the church. All right, it sounds like a lot, right? And if you add that all together, it amounts to about 5% of our waking hours. Right, so even if we're doing really good at this ministry stuff, if we're talking about 5% of our waking hours going into the very reason that we were created, which means 95% of our waking hours, what are we doing? Like, but that, that other 95%, are we just kind of 
surviving, getting by, so that we have those, those few minutes where we can actually do something meaningful, engage with what we were created for. Like for me, it feels like baseball. Uh, I tried my hand at Little League Baseball when I was a kid. I didn't love it, largely because it's really boring. Uh, I'm sure like it, it, as you get better and everything, it gets less boring, but you're just waiting most of the game. Like when you're on offense, you're, you're kind of like 90% of the time just sitting on the bench waiting for your turn to get, on like get up at bat. And then if you get on base, you wait some more until somebody else hits the ball. And then if you're on defense, you're just waiting for the ball to come to you, unless you're the pitcher. Like, that sounds fun, but I wasn't that good, so I wasn't the pitcher. <laughs> so, uh, but, you know, it kind of feels like baseball, where you're just, like, waiting around 95% of the time for a few moments where you get to actually engage in something meaningful. Uh, and, and that can be the idea that we get when we think of our mission as these kind of special ministry projects that we do, the ways that we engage in serving in the church or serving outside of the church. But the reality is, is that we are called to be on mission in the everyday stuff of life, that we can actually live out this mission in the other 95% of our lives. And the Apostle Peter, he actually gives us some really helpful insights in how to do this. And so if you have a Bible, I encourage you to open up to 1 Peter chapter 2, beginning in uh, verse 11. If you don't have a Bible, uh, the, you can just raise your hand, and one of the ushers will be able to bring a Bible right down the aisle. I just got some hands raised there. Uh, but we're going to go to 1 Peter chapter 2. And if you, you don't know who Peter is, Peter was one of the original disciples of Jesus, one of the original followers. And he, he was a cool dude. He like was super, super passionate, had a way of putting his foot in his mouth sometimes. His passion sometimes outweighed his, uh, his knowledge and uh, and wisdom. But he, uh, what made Peter so special is Peter wasn't special at all. He was just kind of like an ordinary fisherman who... You know, he's married, and he had a regular job, uh, but he encountered the real resurrected Jesus, and he became completely sold out for this mission. He gave his entire life to this mission. And he has some really, really helpful stuff for us in this letter. In this letter, he was writing to not just one church. He was writing to a group of churches kind of scattered throughout modern-day Turkey. And they're in a, a situation where the world around, uh, they, aren't, they aren't quite to that place where they're, like, killing Christians, but it's, it's hostile territory. It's increasingly hostile, and they aren't welcome in this land. And he begins in verse 11. He says, Dear friends, I urge you as, as foreigners and exiles to abstain from sinful desires which wage war against your soul. Live such good lives among the pagans that though they accuse you of doing wrong, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day he visits you. He starts here by recontextualizing things for his audience. He starts by calling them foreigners and exiles. And what's interesting is that this wasn't sent, written to a group of foreigners and exiles. This was written to a bunch of different churches from a bunch of different demographics. Sure, there might have been some foreigners and exiles in there, but Peter addresses all of them as foreigners and exiles in the very land that they grew up, the place that they called home their whole lives. And Peter is, is drawing this out for a couple of reasons, because if you're a foreigner and exile, one, it makes sense of why people are, are hostile why they don't fit in, right? If you're an outsider coming in, unless you adapt, right, unless you adapt, 
you will, there will be some sort of hostility. I mean, imagine walking into a Red Sox bar with a, a Yankees hat and jersey on. Like, you will be ostracized because of that. And, and he's, he's drawing attention to the fact that we're outsiders now. Sure, you might have grown up in the neighborhood, but you're a foreigner in this place now. But there's something else about this, this idea of being a foreigner in exile that he's also drawing attention to. It's this idea of, of the exile. See, Israel, at a, a point in history, they were exiled out of the promised land, and they went to Babylon for a period of time. They were exiles in that land. But they knew the whole time that while they were exiled in Babylon, that there was a promised land waiting for them that they were going to return to. And as Peter is saying, look, you guys are foreigners and exiles, he's reminding them, you have a true and better home waiting for you. There is a promised land waiting for you. That is your true home. That is what you live for. And this here, this contextualizes everything that he's about to say. Because what he's saying is, you guys, you guys are foreigners and exiles in your land. You're foreigners here. You might have grown up here. You might speak the language. And I, I want you to, to just think through this for me. Do a little thought experiment for me. Because I think this is so important for us to, to have in the back of our minds as we continue in, on in this letter. All right? Think of this. Imagine that you were called by God to be a missionary to Turkey, right? He's writing to Turkey. We'll pick Turkey. So you're going to go to Istanbul, and you've already learned the language, you've studied the culture, and you have your one-way ticket, and you leave tomorrow, and you are going to move to Turkey quite possibly for the rest of your life to go on this mission for God. This is the, the context that Peter is trying to draw us into, that we are, we are foreign missionaries going into our very homes. I, I love the way that, that Charles Spurgeon puts it. He says that every follower of Christ is either, every Christian is either a missionary or an imposter, right? We are, we are all missionaries. Whether we're on mission or not, whether we're actually living out that mission or not, that, that's up to you, but, but we are called to be missionaries. God has called us to be missionaries. And Peter is saying that we're actually doing foreign missions. You're a foreign missionary sent by God to Albertson and New Hyde Park and Garden City and Mineola. This is your calling. You are a foreign missionary. And he continues on here. And his first thing is to warn them against assimilation, right? He says, abstain from sinful desires. He's warning them against uh, assimilation because you know what happens. If you are an outsider and you move and you're surrounded by a group of people, a new group of people, you're going to start to adapt and adopt some of their practices and behaviors. I remember my brother's in the Navy, so he travels around a lot, and he was stationed in South Carolina for a, a while early on in his career. I remember going to visit him. I was in high school at the time, and I was shocked and a little bit horrified to know that my brother picked up a little bit of a southern drawl while living in, it was, it was horrible. I couldn't imagine, my very own brother with a southern accent, it was, yeah. Uh, but that's what happens when you, you move into a new context, surrounded by new people, you tend to adapt and assimilate. And Peter's saying, look, there's sin, it abounds around us. And as foreigners and exiles here, we have to be on guard. We have to stand our ground to not assimilate to the culture around us. And then he continues on. And he says, live such good lives among the pagans that though they accuse you of doing wrong, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day he visits you. He's saying live such good lives and do such good deeds that the people that don't like you, right, the people that are hostile to you, the people that want to accuse you, the people that you annoy, those people are so impressed with the work that you're going to do that they're going to glorify God, right? 
this, these are such good deeds. This goes far beyond just being a nice guy, right? Anybody can be a nice guy, but he's talking about something that is so profound and so consistent that it actually causes the people that don't like you. Like, it's easy to win over the people that like us, but the people that don't like us to be so impressed with what we're doing, to actually glorify God as a result. And what he does is, he, he then gives us a few examples, a few practical examples of how we could do these really good deeds in the everyday stuff of life. And he, he picks three spheres, and they're a little, little dated. I wish uh, he picked something that was a little more relevant to today, but I think we can adapt to it. He picks three spheres. Uh, he talks about politics, work, and marriage. I know, it would have been nice if he picked things that we still deal with, because of course we don't have any problems with politics, work, or marriage in our lives. Uh, but he picks these three spheres where he, he, they're everyday things. He's not talking about going out and you know, doing stuff in the church or with the church. He's talking about the everyday life of a, a normal person, how we can go in there and we can do things differently and, and do such good deeds. And he starts with politics, right? In verse 13, if you have your Bible still open, verse 13, he says, Submit yourselves for the Lord's sake to every human authority, whether to the emperor as the supreme authority, or to governors who are sent by him to punish those who do wrong and to commend those who do right. For it is God's will that by doing good, you should silence the ignorant talk of foolish people. He starts with this really disgusting word, submit. I don't like submission, personally. It doesn't come naturally. And I don't think it comes naturally to anybody. Uh, And I, I think that's partially the point. But he calls us to something different. He calls us to submit. But he says, and this is so important, he says, submit for the Lord's sake. All right, he's not saying submit for your sake. He's not saying submit for the sake of your family or submit for the sake of your church. He's saying submit for the Lord's sake. And the reason this is so important is submission to every human authority, as he's talking about here, might not always be in your best (laughs) self-interest. That sometimes submission is costly. Sometimes submission isn't going to go the way that you would want. Sometimes you might get a better situation for yourself by fighting back and standing your ground. And he's saying, submit, not for your sake. Submit for the Lord's sake because, don't forget, you're a foreigner and you're in exile. And this is not your home. So he says, submit. Submit. Where others are going to fight, you can choose to submit. Where others are going to stand their ground and they're going to insist on trying to better the situation, you can submit. And then he says something that I probably need to, uh, I don't know, put on my mirror and on my dashboard and on my computer that I could read every day. In verse 15, look what he says in verse 15. He says, for it is God's will that by doing what? Say that with me. It is God's will that by doing good... You should silence the ignorant talk of foolish people. There are a lot of foolish people spewing lots of ignorant talk in my life. And I am very, very interested in silencing them. And I don't usually pick this method. (laughs) Right? And yet, he says here, it is God's will that you should silence this ignorant talk of foolish people by doing good. Not by getting offended, not by throwing a fit, not by engaging in the argumentation, not by trying to, you know, get your propaganda out there, not by, you know, talking about people behind their back, not by any of these other means. He says, by doing 
good, you'll be able to silence and that this is God's will for us. And, and think about it. Think again, going back to this, this idea that you're a foreign missionary in Turkey on a mission, right? On a mission for God. How would you engage in the political arena in Turkey as a missionary in this foreign land? Of course you'd be invested. Of course you would get involved in the ways that you can get involved. Like, we have a responsibility to do that. But would you get offended by people that don't agree with you? Would you be divisive among people? Would you ever let the, the political bent trump this mission that you have for God? Of course not, because it's not even your home. And Peter is reminding us that, that this isn't our home. That we're foreigners and exiles here. That the USA is no more your home than Istanbul is your home. Because our home is a, a new heaven and a new earth. And, you know, especially, especially in our current political climate, we have this opportunity to do the normal thing. To do, it's the same thing everybody else is doing, but to do it so differently to engage in politics in a very, very different way, where instead of trying to bring the same hate, we're actually responding with a love. And instead of trying to fight for ourselves, we're responding with submission. And instead of bringing and seeking ill will for people, we're actually doing good. Because we're on a different mission. We're not just here to change the political climate of our country. We're here to display the glory of God over the whole earth. And that is our primary mission. And, you know, we have midterms coming up and there's tensions are high and everything like that. And no matter how these elections go, I don't know if you know this, but, but our king will be sitting on his throne and nobody is going to do anything to change that. <laughs> Nothing is going to change that. And so, yes, yes, we engage in the political world, but we do it differently. We do it strategically. We do it with this, this position of submission, knowing this is not our home. He goes on, he gives us a, a second example in work. If you look at verse 18, he starts with the word slaves. Uh, and just to, to clarify, this word, the, the Greek word doulos, translated slaves here, it's not the same thing as slavery as we, we tend to think about from like the, uh, the 19th century slavery here in the U.S. It's not quite that. And that's actually a lot of different things that this word can mean. Sometimes it's even just like a house servant. A lot of people were voluntarily like slaves to pay off debts, stuff like that. I'm not saying it was like a good institution, but it wasn't quite what, uh, what we have in mind. And it is more like being an employee. So I'm going to take a little liberty here. Uh, hopefully it's not sacrilegious. And I'm going to switch out slaves with employee and masters with bosses. All right. Employees, in reverent fear of God, submit yourselves to your bosses, not only to those who are good and considerate, but also to those who are harsh. For it is commendable if someone bears up under the pain of unjust suffering because they are conscious of God. Here it is again. He uses that same word, submit. Submit. Submit where, where the boss, they might not be treating you fairly. Right? And, and I, if you're like me, when I hear this, because you guys know my boss. <laughs> I hear this. I'm like, but Peter, what if, what if my boss is a big fat jerk face? Like, <sighs> what, if, like what if he never appreciates the stuff that I do? Uh, by the way, Robert isn't a big fat jerk face, uh, and he's very appreciative of the stuff I do. But for you, maybe you have a boss that just isn't 
good, right? And they're, they're harsh, and you, you want to react to this by saying, but Peter, you don't understand what my boss is like. You don't understand I'm not being treated fairly. And if I just submit, if I just take this, I'm never going to make the situation any better. And he says, exactly, because <laughs> you're a foreigner, and you're in exile here, and the point isn't to make your situation better. The point is to, to live on this mission where you get to display the glory of God in these situations, and it's in the midst of the unfairness and in the midst of the unjust suffering that we get to display the glory of God in a way that we can't when our boss is good. I remember when Lindsay and I first got married, she was in this job that wasn't good, and her boss was really not good. She was like a fine enough lady, but she had no idea how to manage. Nobody trained her. It was very unfair to her, actually. Uh, but she was really, really bad. And it was a really bad work environment, not only for Lindsay, but for everybody else. And Lindsay was there for like two years, and everybody else lasted about like three months. Like the turnover was constant. She was the only one that, that stuck. And for a while, Lindsay kind of took the same tack as everybody else, where there's like complaining and moaning and groaning and trying to resist and fight back and everything like that. I'm just realizing now, I never okayed this with Lindsay. By the way, I'm telling a story about you. Uh, <laughs> but then after a while, she, she decided to think about it differently. Think about it through the lens of this mission. And she changed her tune and she chose to submit where others would fight back. And she chose to try and bless her boss where others would try to deride her behind her back. And all of a sudden, people noticed. Her coworkers noticed. People actually asked questions. And, and it's funny, when we actually display the life of Christ in this way, in our, our everyday actions, people notice and they ask questions and we get to respond to those questions. Peter's giving us this example. Hey, you can submit, even at work. And he gives a, a third example, and we won't read it, but he, he goes into marriage and he uses that same word again, submission. And he, he calls us to submit in our marriages and to show uh, an unusual compassion. Like, did you ever think that your marriage... Your marriage can be a, an environment to live on mission for the gospel. That your marriage can actually display the gospel in some really unusual ways. Because especially in our day and age, where people are, are just fleeing from any marriage that they just feel like they're not having their needs met or they're, they're not getting what they want in the situation, or we have these, these fractures in marriage where people, there's just this hostility that's in there. We can actually have different kinds of marriages. Like, we can be gracious and compassionate and loving. Like, husbands, we can be loving and tender and supportive to our wives. And when the other guys are complaining that their wives do this or do that, we can be praising what our wives are doing well. And wives, when, when you, the ladies are, are complaining about their husbands and how they don't listen and they never get anything done and blah, 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 you can actually, you can say something good. You can be loving and affirming of your husband. And, and that when, when your spouse does something to irritate you or bother you, you can actually choose to forgive and choose to love them in that situation. Not always seeking as your highest priority to make the situation better. Because that's my tendency. I just want to fix it. I want it to be better. And yet we're given an opportunity when things go wrong to actually submit to these situations and show love. Because it actually displays the life of Christ and what he has done for us. And in all of this, whether it's in the, the workplace or it's in politics or it's in marriage or any other sphere of life, what Peter is, in a sense, saying is, be a loser. <laughs> in a sense, he's saying, be a loser. Be the one who loses. 
Everybody's out there and they're trying to win. They're trying to win every argument. They're trying to win every position. And we have this, this unique potential to choose to lose because this is not our home. We're foreigners and we're exiles here. And when suffering comes our way, we can, we can lose. And, and, and of course, it's like, who would ever want to lose? Why would anybody ever choose that? Except it's, it's to this that we were called. Look at verse 21. Verse 21. To this you were called because Christ suffered for you, leaving you an example that you should follow in his steps. He committed no sin and no deceit was found in his mouth. And when they hurled insults at him, he didn't retaliate. And when he suffered, he made no threats. Instead, he entrusted himself to him who judges justly. He himself bore our sins in his body on the cross so that we might die to sin and live for righteousness. By his wounds, you, right? By his wounds, you have been healed. Peter saying that the whole reason for all of this, the reason why we choose to lose is because we're following the example of Jesus Jesus, who willingly, voluntarily lost it all so that we could win. And when we choose to lose, choose to be the one who gets beat out in some of these situations, instead of trying to fight back if we submit, instead of trying to tear them down, we decide to do good and bless them and build them up. We actually get to follow Jesus. Right? We call ourselves followers of Jesus. And he says, if you want to follow Jesus, then we have to follow his example. And he lost so that we can win. And every day, in the everyday stuff of life, there are situations where there's a chance. There's a chance for you to be the loser. There's a chance for you to say, you know, I'm okay with suffering loss. That's what suffering is. It's, it's experiencing a loss, and it's in suffering that we get to display one of our, our, it's actually one of our greatest testimonies as followers of Christ, is how we deal with loss and how we deal with suffering, whether it's because somebody, like, took it from us, we lost because somebody took it from us, or life took it from us. Suffering, and the way we suffer as exiles and foreigners in this land is one of our greatest testimonies to the hope that we have. I remember my father, for like 20 years, he had this friend, Scott, that he would like witness to and build into, and Scott wanted nothing of it. For like 20 years, this went on. And it was finally at my mother's funeral where Scott saw my dad experience loss like nobody ever saw before. He saw hope in a man who just lost his wife that all of a sudden, it flipped the switch. Because suffering, the way we as Christians suffer, it can be different. Whether it's big sufferings or little sufferings, we can, we can be okay. We can submit to the loss with this hope that this is not our home. And we can choose to love instead of fight for our, our best interest right now. And it's a tall order, it is, but this is what Jesus did, and this is the very action that saved you and me. Right? Jesus chose to lose, and that saved me. And if we want to go on this mission to, to see others come to see and know this, then, then we get to do this by choosing to lose just as Jesus chose to lose. Chose to lose. And, and it's not just about suffering. Because suffering we can't always control because that, that kind of happens to us. But suffering and sacrifice are kind of two sides of the same coin. 
right? They're both about loss. Suffering you lose because somebody takes it from you. Sacrifice you lose because you give it up. So you don't have to wait for suffering to come your way in order to be a loser. <laughs> you don't have to wait to actually give away, to make sacrifices, to experience loss where other people are clinging to what they love. And it doesn't have to be big things. Like, I'm not talking about huge dramatic things. I'm talking about think of the areas of your life, things you're already doing, and where can you just give a little more? Be strategic about going a little farther, right? Are you, are you going to, like, soccer games because or baseball games or whatever with your kids right now? And are you frustrated that, you know, you don't have more time to yourself? Well, how about instead of complaining about that, how about you go, but you go recognizing that all the other parents are probably also feeling the same thing. And why don't you go and you bring a gift? <laughs> why don't you go bring hot chocolate, bring blankets, bring something. Just think of what other people are feeling. Choose, choose to be the one who loses in this situation, to give a little bit more. Think through some of these things creatively. Halloween's coming up, Right? Uh, you guys are probably going to give out candy anyway for Halloween, I imagine, right? Give the best. Give the king, like the full-size candy bars. Be the house. Please don't be the house that gives out like Jesus tracks and no candy. That is not sending a good message. But like give the good stuff. Like uh, Lindsay and I, for the, uh, we just moved out of Seacliff. When we were living there, uh, we were in like an apartment building. So when we came to our building, so we just built a door and brought it to the end of the driveway, and we got like the best candy, and we gave out two to every kid. And, and you know what? People notice these things, and they start to ask questions, and you get to respond with the truth of who Jesus is. It's not a big deal. These are things you're probably already doing anyway. You're gonna go, you don't, I know you're not going to build a door, but, but you're probably going to give out candy. Give the best candy, right? Uh, in Seacliff, they have this uh, area, the whole town-wide garage sale right? The whole town comes out. Everybody's like selling stuff. We lived right on the, the main street. So we're like, well, we're going to be hanging out here all day anyway. Uh, so we just went to Costco. We bought like a, a few hundred hamburgers and hot dogs and pulled our grill out on the street and made a sign, free lunch. And we just gave out free hamburgers and hot dogs to people. We weren't adding much to our life, really, because we were going to be there doing it anyway. We just did it better than anybody else because we chose to, to lose. We chose to lose something that was ours and, and give it away and, and people notice these things. You know, winter's coming, and you're going to have to get out there, and you're going to have to shovel your sidewalk or snowblow or whatever. And you know what? You're out there anyway. Why don't you clean off your neighbor's car and shovel their walk? Why don't you? It's this idea of finding the things that you're already doing and doing them better, doing them sacrificially, doing them in ways that nobody else is doing because everybody's trying to win. Everybody's trying to keep on, and you're just going to be like, you know what? I'm okay being the loser in this situation because I have a different mission and I have a different home that I'm fighting for. And I love the way that Peter concludes this whole section it's all the way down in chapter 3, for, uh, beginning in thir uh, verse 13. He says, Who's going to harm you if you're eager to do good? But even if you should suffer for what is right, you are blessed. Don't fear their threats. Do not be frightened. But, here it is in verse 15, in your hearts, revere Christ as Lord. It says, always be prepared to give an answer to everyone who asks you to give the reason for the hope that you have. But do this with gentleness and respect. He says, always be prepared to give an answer, right? 
what he's saying is, is if you're living this way, if you're, if you're living for the sake of, of Christ, where you're re- revering him as Lord, you understand that you're in exile and you're a foreigner here and you're willing to suffer and you're willing to sacrifice. If you do this, he's saying, get ready for questions because people are going to ask you about this. And I don't know if you've ever like, struggled to you know, figure out ways to share your faith with people in your life. The easiest way is in response to their questions, <laughs> Right? Here at Beacon, you've probably heard us talk about this before. We talk about the idea of living a questionable life, and that's what we're talking about, is living on mission in the everyday stuff of life because we realize we are foreign missionaries here. This is not our home, and we're living for the sake of Christ, not just my my self-interest, and so I'm willing to lose. I will be the loser so that Christ can win. Right? Are you willing to be the loser so that Christ can win? If you're willing to do this, get ready for the questions. <laughs> Start preparing to, to know how to answer these questions. Because if Jesus, in, in his life and death and resurrection, if Jesus is the foundation for why you do what you do, he will easily be the explanation for why you do what you do. And man, it's fun to tell people about Jesus, <laughs> especially in response to their questions. Let me pray for us. Father, this is a, a, a tall order for us. God, to, to understand that this is not our true home, that this life isn't all there is. God, and to choose for your sake to lose, to choose to be the ones who sacrifice and the ones who suffer to submit where others would fight. God, it's just, it's a lot. And it doesn't come naturally. And so we pray that your spirit will stir in our hearts, that we will revere Jesus as Lord, that we will follow his example, that we will trust ourselves to this judge who judges justly. You are our heavenly father. God, this is our hope our prayer. We love you and we trust you in Jesus' name.